Hi, everyone. This is Beige with Public. Today, our guest is Stella Assange. Stella is a lawyer and a human rights specialist who is also the wife of WikiLeaks founder and political prisoner Julian Assange. Stella joined Julian's legal team back in 2011. By then, Assange had published a series of damning leaks that enraged the U.S. government, exposing the brutal reality of its war crimes, its habit of spying on friends, and the rampant corruption that fuels global politics. In the intervening years, including the seven he spent as a political asylee inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London, Stella and Julian's relationship took on a new dimension. They fell in love and now have two children together. But Julian remains in a high-security British prison, where he's been for the past four and a half years despite not having been convicted of a crime. An Australian citizen in limbo between the UK and the US, which says it intends to extradite and prosecute him under the Espionage Act, Assange remains one of the world's most important political prisoners. His case and his treatment are a bellwether for the rapid and alarming erosion of free speech and journalistic norms in the US and beyond. Stella continues to fight for his freedom and against the hypocrisy of the system that keeps him locked up. If you start to view the public as the enemy, she says in our conversation, then you can begin to see journalism, as the state does, as espionage. But of course, this preposterous notion is an affront to the democratic, open society the U.S. claims to be. And, as Stella notes, the U.S. doesn't even need to prosecute Julian for him to serve their purpose— the cruel, years-long imprisonment is enough. It provides a stunning deterrent for journalists and would-be whistleblowers everywhere. In this interview, we learn more about Stella's background, the legal and political dimensions of the case, and above all, why Julian Assange must be free. Stella, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. Great. Well, I wanted to start by asking you if you could for for our listeners who maybe are not familiar with your background if you could tell us a little bit about yourself how you grew up your background in law and human rights and how you met Julian Assange um well i was born in south africa in 1983 to a a, a cuban father and spanish mother um and my father um, was working for the Swedish Development Agency. He's an architect and a town planner. And at the time, he was working in Southern Africa. My mom's the theater director. And so they moved to Botswana in 1977, which is at the height of, you know, apartheid in, in South Africa. And they got involved um, with a art collective called Medu because they're both artists. Um, and this was a political art collective. So it was basically South African exiles who were leaving South Africa because of apartheid um, and living in Botswana or staying there for a few months and then moving on. And this collective uh, was started in 77, the same year my parents um, got there and um, then went on until 1985. My dad headed the poster unit. My mom headed the theater unit. And there were about five or six of these um, units. And it was, well, politically engaged artists of the highest caliber. Um, one of the, I think, best um, artists in in uh, South Africa, uh, whose name was Tami Nela, was a, a very close friend of ours. Um, but this art collective 
<clears throat> it um it was um it basically uh had to um it came to an end uh because the south african uh police um conducted a raid because many of these artists were also very politically active in the ANC which was the African National Congress um and so this this group was targeted on one night of june 1985 uh south african special forces crosses the bo crossed the border which was about uh just a few kilometers away from the botswana's capital kaburone and uh they killed 12 people i think uh including two children and uh one of them was this very close friend of ours tummy and um i was only two and a half at the time uh we were we were there at the time uh, my my parents have given me a very vivid account of what it was like uh grenades and gunshots and so on racing through the city in the middle of the night but this event and obviously this terrible loss to our family um played a big big role in my in my upbringing and my parents were also you know politically active uh during this time these were th these were political plays political posters and so on and um and so yeah my parents were were involved in in the struggle uh against apartheid and i grew up even though we left botswana and then lesotho we moved to europe when i was uh eight uh we still went to the to the um political rallies in support of a free south africa and so on um until there were free and fair elections in 1994 my mom was a was an observer actually let me correct that my mom was uh involved in the uh, election ed education in the lead up to the democratic elections yeah that's kind of my my uh family's political context we moved from southern africa when i was 8 i came to europe um we lived in sweden for 7 years then we lived in spain and then i moved to london to start university so my my ba initially was in uh, politics and law and afterwards um i qualified to be a lawyer eventually but um initially i was very much interested in politics very much interested in law um and international law and refugee studies and so on and then um i i worked um in east timor and i worked with the un and the european commission this kind of thing and um then i went to london in 2011 um because um i got an email from julian's then solicitor uh jennifer robinson now she's a barrister and she said uh she was working on the julian assange case and um that i uh might fit into the legal team because by then julian was already under house arrest uh in the uk and so 2011 is just to situate you in time wikileaks had published by then Iraq war logs, the Afghan war diaries, collateral murder video, the embassy cables. So he was already he was already in a very precarious uh legal and political position but he was also um 
there was a lot of attention on the WikiLeaks publications at the time. What had been your experience uh, until that point, your legal experience? Like what, what areas had you focused on? Was it different than, than what you'd been doing? But, but mostly uh, refugee law and mm -hmm. also um, press media law and, uh, and human rights more generally. Yeah. Um, but the kind of added value, uh, I guess, that I had was that I was a Swedish speaker and I was also a Spanish speaker. Um, and so these two elements, I guess, uh, uh, made me, I think, quite a, 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 an important element to the team uh, because of, of my languages. Obviously, Julian has a, a lot of lawyers with, with you know, decades of experience, um, but I had the languages. How many languages do you speak total? Uh, well, I speak four well, um, and then I speak French uh, not very well. All right, five and a half, amazing. <laughs> four and a half, four and a half. Four and a half, sorry. <laughs> yeah, better, better than most. All right, so let's just go ahead and, and get into to the case, to the status. Julian has been at Belmarsh Prison for the last uh, four years, is that right? Yeah, four years and, and about four months. Four years and four months, and he was initially serving a 50-week sentence for, for a bail charge, right? But he's been held there ever since? Yeah, so he, he his initial sentence well, his only sentence uh, before the British courts was uh, for 50 weeks. In the UK, you serve half a custodial sentence. So by September 2019, he had served his sentence and everything after September 20, um, might be October actually, anyway, 2019, he has just been on remand. He's not charged of anything in the UK. He's just being held on behalf of the United States um, in relation to the extradition. It seems, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed that over the last several years that support for his case was gaining momentum. The US government, the Biden administration hadn't been that explicit about it until recently. Maybe we felt the climate was shifting. You know, Joe Biden said, not that this means anything, but he said at the White House Correspondents' Dinner earlier this year, journalism is not a crime. The U.S. Congress, major newspapers, world leaders have voiced support for Julian's case and against U.S. extradition efforts. Uh, but then on July 28th, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in Australia pretty much denounced him, called him a serious threat to national security, and stated that extradition effort would proceed and that the Biden administration intends to prosecute him under the U.S. Espionage Act. So what do you make of this shift? Is there any missing context from that that you can fill in? Does it say something in particular about the Biden administration or, or what are we seeing right now? Well, I think it would be um, wrong to look at the Biden administration as a, as a unit. Um, Blinken's statements uh, came in the context of an overwhelming support for Julian in Australia and pressure on the current government to do something about it and to um, 
use its position as the most important strategic ally of the United States um, to secure his freedom. And this is basically something that uh, Prime Minister Albanese uh, ran on, on his electoral t ticket a year ago. So the population wants him to deliver. And the latest, latest polling shows that about 89% of Australians want Julian free. So this is just an overwhelming support for Julian. And Blinken's statements probably were intended to shut down this um, these demands. And in fact, they've had the opposite effect. The, the strategic alliance that the UK, sorry, well, the UK, Australia and the US have entered into AUKUS is very unpopular in Australia. And um, his statements added insult to, to injury there. And, you know, it's completely inconsistent uh, because on the one hand, you get, for example, the White House, when asked about Julian's case, they say, oh, nothing to do with us, you know, talk to the DOJ. And then Blinken, who's a Secretary of State, makes these statements um, in a press conference, which is, of course, wholly inappropriate if the line is really that the DOJ is the one um, who, who should be answering the questions. Of course, Blinken was uh, part of the State Department, I believe, under Hillary Clinton, which was exposed through the State Department cable. So you also have to take into account uh, people like Antony Blinken, who have a personal um, um, bias, I would say, and uh, might not have considered uh, the greater implications of the prosecution against Julian. Uh, you know, it's as absurd as if um, I, I always take it to to uh, the, the example of Evan Gershkovich in in Russia, and I know some people recoil from from doing these comparisons. But actually, why why should we recoil for it from from drawing the comparison? Because the cases are actually extremely similar. Evan Gershkovich is a Wall Street Journal um, reporter who was who is um, facing trial or in in, in Russia in relation to his reporting and news gathering activities. And he's being prosecuted under the Espionage Act. And I'm sure that Russia would say that he poses a grave threat to national security and so on. But actually, you know, journalism done right um, is uncomfortable and sometimes concerns information which uh, the uh, security agencies would rather wasn't out there because then there is scrutiny on them. And of course, they like to operate in absolute secrecy. And if there is a, a situation like uh, war and war crimes and civilian killings and so on, then of course uh, the, the, um, the relative balance of interests needs to weigh in favor of the public and of allowing victims to be able to have redress and so on. Um, so Blinken's, Blinken's statement was, uh, you know, just a I think an attempt to, to shut down um, the debate in Australia, but it's had the opposite effect. And the fact that he did that, I think, uh, shows that he has a poor reading of the Australian context. Mm -hmm. I really love Glenn Greenwald on this issue. I feel like no one is better at the kind of stinging criticism of, of the hypocrisy and idiocy <laughs> of the U.S. government and its its media servants, as, as he would put it. He, on a show, I think about Julian recently, he highlighted 
difference between the mainstream media and cases like Assange or people like Edward Snowden, these kinds of cases is that the mainstream media publishes leaks that are authorized that the U.S. government wants you to see that are a form of propaganda and that the leakers are are never punished. In fact, they're celebrated when, you know, when they're sanctioned like this. People who end up in prison are those who show you the secrets they want to hide. And he said, quote, that's the difference between being a propagandist and a journalist. I guess the U.S. government has said, for example, they accuse him of going, he's acting beyond the role of a journalist. I don't see that as being true. Can you tell me why that's that's not the case? Well, it's very interesting how interesting how um, the role of journalist of the journalist is constantly invoked, um, but then often instrumentalized. So, the U- U.S. government has no business uh, in deciding who is and who isn't a journalist. Um, that's they. They should have nothing to do with that. Um, right. The Federation of Journalists, um, uh, International Federation of Journalists, says uh, has uh, Julian as a member of of that federation. It's the worldwide federation of all the unions in the world. Uh, I think there are six hundred thousand members. Um, he's been a member of his journalist union in Australia, and surely they would have a better sense of of. Uh, that kind of thing than than the U.S. government, but I guess the the answer is that um, a journalist that publishes things that you don't like is not a journalist. That's basically the implication. And um, of course, when you're at that stage, then you no longer have press freedom. Uh, when you're not able to publish and do your job um, freely, then um, that that this this press freedom concept just becomes uh, uh, a flag uh, with with nothing behind it really. Um, but people within the U.S. government are aware of this within the administration, within you know uh, the big newspapers and so on. That the case against Julian marks a real departure. Uh, that there. They have never before uh, deployed the Espionage Act in this way against a publisher uh, for receiving information from a source. That uh, this came amidst the Trump administration's being incensed by all the leaks uh, that were constant, frankly, uh, during the Trump administration. It was a great time for leaks, uh, but very bad time for, for new precedents. And, and in fact, uh, I read that uh, the Trump administration had, I don't know how many, uh, by order of how many, I think it was hundreds more investigations in relation to leaks than the previous administration. Um, so there's been a shutting down um, of, of uh, journalists' ability to do their work. I was just speaking to Chris Hedges the other day. He was in London, and he, of course, had been the New York Times correspondent, um, I think in, well, in Latin America and in Europe for a while. And he still has many friends in the New York Times and uh, he was speaking to his old friends and they were saying, well, we basically don't have an investigative unit anymore. Uh, We can't do that anymore. And that's the true state of it. And the, the main reason for it is the Assange precedent. 
That's what explains the Washington Post and the New York Times coming out with their editorials uh, saying the case against Assange strikes at the heart of the First Amendment. It has to be dropped. Um, that what is being criminalized is, is journalistic activity um, because they know, because they consult their legal departments when they get uh, explosive uh, material and they are told not to publish. It's very clear that that's what's going on. That's what prompts those kinds of editorials. So when the U.S. government is playing this game of, oh, he's not a journalist and so on, it's just playing on this. It's basically a sideshow. Uh, there's no there's no special protection uh, for journalists under the Constitution. The, the First Amendment does not differentiate journalists from, from uh, you know, the the from the rest. Um, so it's basically a distraction and it's a distraction to try to divide the journalist community. And unfortunately, many people within the journalist community have, have bitten um, with that kind of um, um, uh, incentive to, to, to um, not just um, not show solidarity, but to not understand the real issues. Uh, the, the, I should say that there are actually some unexpected um, voices who have support has come from unexpected places, not with the kind of force and and const, uh, const, constance, <laughs> no, not with the kind of force and uh, consistency as there sh there should be, uh, but for example, um, Rachel Maddow has done a segment about. The, the grave risk that this case poses poses to press freedom. Um, Chris Hayes, I believe, and and Mehdi Hassan has done several. Um, That's very surprising. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, it, it is yeah. very surprising. Um, mm -hmm. And that is, I think, because, um, well, because they've, they've actually looked into or been briefed on the actual issues. And when you go to the subject experts, that is, um, you know, the, the uh, uh, CPJ, uh, Committee to Protect Journalists, Reporters Without Borders, um, Human Rights Watch, ACLU, and so on, who have looked at the uh, legal implications, who understand the precedent that's being set, uh, they are absolutely clear that this case is a the most dangerous attack on press freedom ever um, to have been launched by a U.S. administration and uh, that it marks a, a before and an after um, that the First Amendment uh, is being fundamentally undermined through this and uh, that, you know, that, that, that you can't just embark on this and expect um, but, and expect to be a one-off, uh, that it actually creates a new trajectory, a, a new political reality um, in which uh, journalists and, and others uh, are, feel the chilling effect. And this, of course, becomes cumulative over time. Um, you know, it, it's not just that the, the New York Times investigative unit isn't publishing for now. It's, it's that kind of thing doesn't, um, over time it becomes harder and harder because there's not enough pushback. And of course, this prosecution against Julian has been allowed to proceed 
um, for four years, almost four and a half years now since it was first announced. And uh, I think you can very clearly see uh, the knock-on effect. And it's not just press freedom, you know, it's, it's freedom of speech more generally, but all these things go together because it is a cultural um, and political um, uh, development uh, that solidifies over time. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.